The sweet sound of sports you love from Sling. The collide of football pads. The squeak of shoes on a basketball court. The crack of the bat on a home run. The slice of skates cutting across the ice. But what about this one? That's the sound of all the sports you love. All at once. Starting at $40 a month. Experience it all live with Sling. Sling. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the TakeCast. My name is Davis Maddock. You guys can find me on Twitter at Davis Maddock. In this episode of the show, I am joined by up and coming analytics superstar Tej Seth. You can find his data science work at Sumer Sports. You can find his coding tutorials at Michigan Football Analytics. He's got some awesome coding tutorials up on his Twitter joined the show just to kind of chat about some real analytics questions that are going to impact the 2023 NFL season, a little bit of running back contract analysis, quarterback play, wide receiver play analysis, all of that awesome stuff that is so great to dive into with someone who really knows what they're talking about. If you want to support this show, you can subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com slash There is a link of that in the description of this show. You can tell a friend about the program, or you can leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now let's go ahead and get into the episode. All right, everyone. Very excited to welcome Tej Seth in to the program. You probably know him best from his data science work at Sumer Sports. I know him best because he meets a very important criteria, which is that he is a huge football nerd, but even more importantly to me, a huge best ball nerd. Something that I think should be perfectly married, but really doesn't seem to be. Uh, and I don't I don't really know why that is. Tej, thank you very much for joining the program. Extremely happy to have you here today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Appreciate the uh, the kind words at the beginning here. And you know, I'm I'm very excited to to talk with you today. Okay. Well, let's let's start there. Why is it that you think more football nerds are not into best ball? Because I, I actually get why a lot of people who are very serious into data science and, and um, you know, EP, just like very good at math, the mathematical side of football. I actually completely get why they don't really like season long managed. Um, you got to make waivers, you got to make trades. Like it just, it's a, it's a much more involved process. It's also less mathematical. I think, you know, there is, there's a little bit more of um, edge grinding and things like that, but best ball is so database where structure is super important there are mathematical edges that your opponents are are definitely not taking so what is your actually well one what is your thought on that and two how did you become a best ball nerd yeah i mean i think this is a really good question and like i i thought about it a lot um from from when you brought it up and like this is what i think is the reason but i'm not 100 percent sure so you know, both of us spend a lot of time on, on Twitter and like in football Twitter, there's three main groups. There's film Twitter, there's analytics Twitter, and then there's fantasy Twitter. And yeah. like these groups all have their their kind of um, quirks about them and all, all put out really, really good work that I think like everyone can benefit from. But like these groups don't like to be associated with each other. So I think analytics Twitter sees fantasy Twitter going crazy about this new best ball thing and doesn't want to touch it because they just want to focus on like their metrics. Like you mentioned, like EPA and uh, rushing yards over expected and like everything that happens like in the season, like they want to make sure that that they're on top of that and not having to worry about other things. So that's why I, I think that the redraft like you brought up is something that a lot of analytics people don't love to do. The best ball aspect of it is I think is like the season is just such a grind for an analytics person as it is for, for most people that they take the summers really easily. Like we see like the, some of the analytics, like OGs, like Aaron Schatz or, or Ben Baldwin, they produce less content in the summer than they do during the season because 
it's just static data. Like there's no new data updating. So I think that's why like, it's, it's really like the best fall is the, you know, the time to do it is in the summer. And so they're not really just like putting in the, the hours because they know that they're, they're relaxing and saving themselves for the season. So I think you're, I think you're probably right. Uh, I mean, because there is so much granular data that ha- like there's just, there's a lot of like grunt work. I mean, not that I would know cause I'm really fucking bad at math, but uh, my sense of the work that the people who are really in to the database side is like, and a lot of it doesn't necessarily line up with fantasy football analysis either. Like some of it does, right? Like a lot of the work that Josh does, I'm like, Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, air yards and things like that, and like converting to unrealized opportunities. But a lot of it is like pretty intensive. And, but I think you, the number one reason is that fantasy Twitter doesn't want to be analytics Twitter. And analytics Twitter really doesn't want to be fantasy Twitter because mm-hmm. fantasy Twitter has a lot of giant dumbasses in it. And you don't really want those things to overlap. Like fa- fantasy Twitter honestly gives analytics Twitter kind of a bad name because I think film Twitter thinks that they're the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, f- film Twitter thinks that like the running backs don't matter and don't pay running backs. People are are completely the same. Um, so how did you, how did you get into best ball then as uh, was it just basically like the overwhelming marketing? Basically. Yeah. I mean, it's really just a matter of fact, like I was bored in the summer. I needed like an adrenaline rush and I started seeing all these people pop up like, oh, underdog cardio club. And, oh, I'm doing, I just, you know, got Jamar Chase, like three picks after ADP. And they're posting it on Twitter. I'm like, what's this best ball that everyone's talking about? And I like, I, I mean, I love playing fantasy football, like, especially with my friends from, from high school that I still stay in touch with just because of our fantasy football league. But like the waiver wires and, you know, doing trades in season is like kind of, kind of a grind, right? Like it's like, it, it takes time to do that. And there's so much going on in the season. And so when I read up on this concept that it, you just draft and then you can't touch the team until, you know, the, the season's over, basically, I thought it was a really great concept and started doing some drafts on, on underdog when I was outside of Michigan. Uh, and then also came back to Michigan and, and I'm doing some drafts on, on draft Kings. And I just love the, the, you know, the adrenaline rush of it takes an hour to do. And, um, and it's a lot of fun to like research into stacking and, uh, you know, different step, like different formats and like how you want to structure your team and week 17 correlation. Like there's so much math behind it. Like you said, that made it really exciting to, to look at. I think the, and I think another thing is like, it's a very unsolved game, like games mm-hmm. that don't have a solution games that have limited samples are more fun. Cause you can mm-hmm. kind of, I mean, you can justify a lot of things and you can use a, I guess it would be more of like it. A lot of it is not like rigorous statistical analysis. Obviously there has been re- really over the last like six months, there's been a lot of more rigorous statistical analysis on, you know, how to make good teams and expected value and, and things like that. But it's not even, it's not even close. Like eventually, probably not even that far away, people are going to be running like simulations, like full 256 game simulations and drafting based on those and having computers draft for them inside of the applets. But we're not there yet. It's it's to me, I get big. Uh, I mean, you're this is one of the first times I've ever been able to say this on the show, but you're actually probably too young to remember like the poker boom. And that's yeah. sort of what it feels like to me in DF or in best ball right now, where it's like it's pre- solving of the game it's pre sharks versus fish type thing it's not a it's not a money goes up to the top type game and those are the most fun types of games where everyone sort of roughly feels like they can win the stupid million dollars like that's the best part of it to me Mm -hmm. definitely agree with you and like i think i think that's what makes it really fun right now is we're we're still kind of figuring out all all the stuff and like you even look at just like the way that fantasy has changed over time where these last couple of years was all about like you know, hero RB, like most people were taking running backs in the first round, but there were some contrarians out there that were saying to not take running backs in the first round and to go zero RB and, and wait on that. And now that's totally flipped where wide receivers are just being, um, you know, heavily drafted in, in the first and second rounds and then running backs. Now people are waiting on them until later. So it's, it's kind of cool to see like the, uh, the, the flow of like how these things are going to change over time. And then, um, you know, eventually it'll, it'll start to settle, but it's, it's really interesting to see how it'll play out right now. And the equilibrium of the fantasy contest obviously has to respond to what's happening mm-hmm. in the NFL, which I think is another really cool thing because, 
you know, a data set from five years ago just doesn't line up exactly to what we have now because, you know, I mean, famously last year was a, a, a 10 year high and pass rate over expected, but also mm-hmm. a 10 year low and average depth of target. And we're going to talk more about that in a little bit. So basically I've just got a bunch of analytics based questions that I, I could not begin to give a real rigorous statistical answer to. And we're going to chat about them. So the first one is sack rate for quarterbacks. Cause I, this is, I think a huge, this is a film Twitter versus analytics, Twitter versus people who have fan are fans of their favorite team argument which is who is responsible for sack rate so for example joe burrow it takes more sacks than you really would like a truly high-end quarterback to take now joe burrow has addressed this a couple times and one of the things he says is oh well i'll take sacks on third down especially when we're outside of field goal range which sounds reasonable right if you take that on the face of it you're like this is actually probably fine you know punting from 10 yards further whatever now, I, I posed this to Kevin Cole, who said, well, okay, I actually did the research on this and found out Joe Burrow actually takes sacks on third down at the same rate that he does on early yeah. downs. And there's no difference between when they're at the opponent's 30 and their own 30, right? Like it's roughly the same thing. So sort of what is your philosophy or or maybe belief in sack rate? Does the quarterback own it? Does the offensive line own it? Is it play caller based? What is your what is your thoughts on who owns sack rate? Mm-hmm. This is a fantastic question and and something that we talk about a lot. I do think that it's mainly on the quarterback because it stems from time to throw and time to throw is the number one thing that quarterbacks can control. When we look at quarterbacks going from college to pro, their time to throw stays pretty stable. And then season to season, it's it's one of the most stable quarterback stats. And then when you throw in, if if you were building a model on predicting, predicting sacks, for example, the number one like feature of this model, the most important feature that the model would use the most often to predict whether or not a sack occurred on a play is the time to throw on the play. So that's why I see it as a quarterback stat. And I think it's like, it should get more relevance compared to like interceptions, like interceptions get talked about all the time, but sack rate is something that's controlled by the quarterback and it like leads to more expected points Uh, lost on on like over the season because it it occurs more often than interceptions so like I I really like how you brought up the the Kevin Cole uh, aspect there because yeah because when he looked at the data like Joe Burrow is taking sacks uh, on downs like pretty evenly distributed compared to to other quarterbacks and like their down sacks are still pretty brutal from an EPA perspective just because they can either move you out of field goal range or like they put you behind the the um, ball on on when you have to kick a punt and not being able to change the field position as much as you want. I think that's I think that's pretty important. Um, that would be my agreement as or that would be my thought as well. Mostly because if you go through and look at like really great quarterbacks, multiple time mm-hmm. MVP winners, guys who have gotten there, they get sacked way less often than you yeah. would think based on their mobility. I think the the best examples of that are Tom Brady and Peyton Manning, who mm-hmm. by their late thirties, like just could not move at all. Like they couldn't, they couldn't scramble, you know, like, I, you know, like a, I don't know, a Favre and a Romo, these guys were scrambling out of sacks a lot. Like they, they weren't running quarterbacks, but they could move. I mean, that, that shoulder dip move that Romo would always do. So those guys are pretty good at it, but there, there definitely is something to, um, you know, quarterbacks, really good ones sort of have a preternatural ability of anticipation that I don't think you can coach. It just, they, they you know, uh, like a really great soccer player has this too. Their, their proprioception where they're able to just understand space and predict what 21 other people are going to do is just way better, which is why I think also quarterbacks don't really improve at sack rate over time. Like you would, you would expect that they would because interception rate improves over time for young quarterbacks, but sack rate stays pretty static, which I think you, I think you would not expect that you would expect rookie quarterbacks to get sacked a lot and then for them to get slowly better over time, but you don't see it as much, which is a a big reason why I am concerned about Justin Fields and why I think the bears might be more open to not <clears throat> giving him the mega contract. Although there are examples, Daniel Jones got a lot better at sack rate from his first two seasons. Uh, what, so what are your thoughts on, on that development of, of sack rate changing over time? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm with you. And like, I think it's even like a matter of fact, like you mentioned, uh, like Peyton Manning and, and Tom Brady and like Drew Brees, like these these quarterbacks that were able to play for a long time because they were so good at avoiding sacks. And like, when you look at the Broncos specifically, like when they went from Tim Tebow to Peyton Manning, they went from the highest time to throw in the league to the lowest. And then the, it, they also went from ranking 32nd in sack rate to first with relatively the same offensive lines. Like that's the type of things that Peyton Manning could do or when Tom Brady went from New England to Tampa and they went from Jameis Winston to him, like, you know, pretty similar offensive line. They added some pieces in the off season, but like they just took sacks at a way less rate. And like, you see quarterbacks like Carson Wentz, who takes a lot of sacks, puts himself in a lot of pressure. They have to end up playing banged up or injured, like continually throughout every season compared to other top quarterbacks, like, like a Mahomes, like a, um, like a Brady, like we just talked about that, like, are able to play most seasons fully healthy just because they're not putting themselves in harm's way. So I think like all of that stuff on top of each other is why like not taking sacks is so important and also something that you can like keep with you throughout your career because it does stem from that anticipation that you talked about. And I mean, that's, it's also um, like, this is a thing with accuracy too, that we talk mm -hmm. about with quarterbacks. Like quarterbacks very rarely learn how to be significantly more accurate over time. Now your completion percentage can improve because yeah. you can do, you can have like less throwaways, your offense can change, but quarterbacks very rarely get significantly more accurate over time, which is why like, you know, that's something I'm really going to be watching with like Anthony Richardson mm -hmm. um, because there are like accuracy concerns with him. And if he is just, you know, missing guys and, and really struggling as a rookie, I think that is going to be big signal. Um, so I, I think that, I think that is pretty important. Uh, okay. How good are NFL front offices at identifying wide receiver talent? This definitely dovetails with fantasy football because it's something that we used to think teams are really bad at. And now a lot of the research really, really the last five years has basically been, if you were to just to draft rookie wide receivers in the order that the NFL selected them, you'd get pretty close. But it also is one of those positions that the, you know, the the old wives' tale wisdom of NFL guys would tell you teams are just sort of guessing. I, I remember, you know, Bill Simmons was sort of my first big exposure to like somewhat more serious football discussion, you know, more so than like, you know, Terry Bradshaw on, on Fox Sports pregame shows. And that was something he would always hammer. I think because he was a Patriots fan by stating that NFL teams have no idea who's going to be good a wide receiver because the Patriots haven't drafted a good wide receiver. And like their last the thousand yard wide receiver they drafted was Julian Edelman, which is still a stat that completely blows my mind. But do you think this is something that NFL teams have gotten significantly better at? I do think that they're getting better at it based on recent drafts, but I, I dug into the data uh, for this question. So with all first round selections from 2011 to 2019, what was the rate of fifth year options exercised by each position? So the best position that, that NFL front offices are uh, best at in, in drafting the first round is, is interior defensive linemen. I mean, you just look at like any of the top paid defensive tackles in the league right now almost all of them were drafted in the first round maybe a couple in the second round because like that that's just a position where it's pretty easy to identify uh which ones are going to be good going from uh the college to pro so wide receiver was actually third to last actually which i thought was interesting they only have gotten their fifth year option uh exercised on 55.9 percent of the last 38 picks uh, at wide receiver um, edge and running back were the only two that was, that was worse than that. So, well, I think like, if you look at some of the best, like older receivers right now, like a Tyree kill, a Devonte Adams, a Cooper cup, like they all came from outside of the first round, but it is something that I think the NFL is starting to get better at. If you look at some of the younger receivers that have like excelled uh, recently, like, like Justin Jefferson, Devonte Smith, they, they are coming from the first round, just maybe not in the order that teams are taking them. But like, as you mentioned, like the NFL is, it's just very hard to, to draft, um, you know, relative to, to like the order that these players go, there's, there's only like about a 56% chance that the player at the same position taken later in the draft is, um, is going to be worse than the, the player at the same position taken before them. So I think that's what makes it so tough. But 
I think recently because of tracking data that we have at the college level, um, the, the GPS data that tells you their actual speed compared to just using their 40 yard dash and all of those things that are starting to come together will make NFL front offices better at, at drafting receivers. So what are uh, like, these are not available to the public. These, uh, a lot of these um, college wide receiver evaluation stuff, like what, I mean, what, I guess some of these are probably like PFF has them. Some of them you guys probably have at, at Sumer. Like what are some of these new tools and how are, how are teams using them? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, the famous story about this is Cooper cup and uh, Brad Holmes drafting, drafting Cooper cup when he was with the Rams and like Cooper cup didn't do well with his 40 yard dash at the combine. And so they Rams kind of figured that he might drop a little bit in the draft compared to where he was slated because his GPS data from the senior bowl was, was showing that he was the fastest player at the senior bowl. So they were able to use that to know that cup was fast and just didn't have a good day from his 40 yard dash. So it's stuff like that, where there's either a GPS chip on the players, like usually in their shoulder pads uh, at, at these like sanctioned events, like the senior bowl or like an all-star game type thing where teams are able to actually figure out the true speed of these receivers. But then also there's companies like StatsBomb uh, that has done a lot of work in soccer, but now transitioning to football where they're able to extract tracking data uh, for each player of on, on each play in college football. And they're able to use the speed that they're moving along each frame and, and being able to calculate their speed, their acceleration, how fast they run on go routes, how fast they run on, on post routes. And they're able to put these reports together for both NFL teams and college football teams to help them with their, their scouting process. Well, that, I mean, that's sort of uh, that's sort of like an age old football thing is the, because it was the data that, really the fantasy community and the analytics community had for a while was combine data. And that was a great way to put numbers in a data set and test them. Like for example, 40 times gave a really good R squared to future fantasy production for a while, but it was because teams were using that, right? Mm -hmm. Teams loved fast guys and the archetype of wide receivers has changed too. You know, um, 10 years ago, Chris Olave, Jalen Waddell, Devonta Smith. I mean, these guys just would have been too small. They would have never been asked to play outside. They would have only been asked to be slot wide receivers and they would not have been as highly drafted either. You know, um, like Jonathan Mingo five years ago or whatever, I guess Jonathan Mingo got drafted pretty high in this draft because he was one of the only big bodied boundary wide receivers in the whole mm -hmm. class because the meta has shifted so far, you know, amongst uh, NFL wide receivers. But I, I think another interesting thing is there are also a lot of ways to evaluate wide receivers at the NFL level that are new, especially public facing ones. So ESPN has open score. That is the last two years of data. And now we also have these, um, I mean, PFF has them, but you can calculate them yourself, uh, targets per route run and yards per route run. And then there are, you know, obviously teams are going to have their film-based analysis of these guys, but uh, our, my friend Matt Harmon does reception perception where he attempts to do a more rigorous and, uh, you know, like an actual methodology for recording success rate for wide receivers, which I think is a, a good way to represent film-based analysis that isn't just like vibes, you know, like this guy, This I, I really like the vibe of this guy. Um, I mean, what do you think of open score? How much are you guys um, at Sumer using targets slash yards per route run? Like, are these predictive or descriptive? Just evaluating wide receiver talent at the NFL level, what direction is that heading? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think out of all the stats that we kind of have for different positions, EPA for quarterback, rushing yards over expected for running back, yards per route run for receivers, and you can even throw tight ends and running backs in there as well, is my favorite stat to use because it's both descriptive and predictive. Like you mentioned, like it's stability year to year is pretty good, as well as it just tells you which which receivers have the best seasons. And it like it combines a lot of the things that you want to see in a metric into one metric because not only is it taking like how often a player is is really just getting targeted from you know a per route standpoint but also like what are they doing with these targets are they actually catching them like are they are they converting it into big yards after catch opportunities all that stuff 
I put out uh, a piece a couple of weeks ago um, on, on zoomersports.com about how yards per out run should be adjusted for the personnel that the receiver plays with. It's a lot easier to have higher yards per out run in a 12 personnel uh, based offense where you have two tight ends out on the field more often than an 11 personnel based offense where it's just one tight end. And so that's why we can see like the example I used was Drake London and Jerry Judy had about the same uh, yards per out run last year, but Drake London played in a very heavy, like they were using extra offensive linemen and two running backs and two tight ends at some point while Jerry Judy played in a primarily 11 personnel offense where they just use one tight end most of the time. So when you adjust for that, Judy comes across as the better and, and more productive receiver because he, it's harder for him to get uh, these, these types of targets when there's more viable receiving options on the field. Yeah. The, which is so like, that is very hard to parse out as sort of a lay person trying to understand all of this is like, and, and it's hard to even, I would imagine it's hard to sort of like conclusively prove these things too, that it's like much harder to be a boundary wide receiver mm -hmm. in 12 personnel than it is to be a slot wide receiver in 11 personnel. And part of that is again, you know, the, the changing structure of how NFL teams are, are playing defense, right? Like, it, who know, I mean, it could be harder to be a slot wide receiver this year. Teams yeah. could go the other way from this meta and be like, we are just so sick of giving up seven yards every time the, you know, the Denver Broncos want to throw a slant to Coral and Sutton. Like we got to do, we got to do something different. Um, and teams actually last year, there were a couple teams that went really hard into 12 personnel teams. You wouldn't expect like the Kansas city chiefs, mm -hmm. for example, would be like, when you think of the chiefs, you do not think, heavy personnel blocking to like Noah Gray, I, I believe played the fourth most snaps of any chief skill position player last year, which like feels completely made up. You'd be like, there's no way that's true. And they, they also led the NFL in 13 personnel. So yeah. they, they led the NFL in three tight end stuff, which again, you wouldn't guess at all. And some teams are also really stubborn about it. Like I remember the Ertz Goddard Eagles, they would just run all this 12 personnel, but they were, brutal at it i mean tight end is just i think a very hard position to play but like all of that stuff that's that was a lot of information i just threw you it's just very hard to parse out i mean this is i guess this is the key to why football analytics is so difficult because there are so many moving parts in every individual movement that it's hard to find credit and fault for these things mm -hmm. definitely and I, i'm glad that you brought up the the chief's point because yeah, I had the stat for this. The Chiefs played 12 or 13 personnel 24% of the time in 2021. And that went up to 39% of the time in 2022, because that was their their answer to a lot of the ways that the defenses were, were trying to beat them. We remember the, the one month stretch where Mahomes and, and Andy Reid and uh, Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey, they had all these uh, available weapons, but like they weren't able to to overcome these types of defenses that were being thrown at them with light boxes and, and different safety structures. And so the Chiefs answer to that this past year was they're going to use a ton of the 12, 13 personnel, the heavy sets, like you mentioned with Noah Gray and Blake Bell, as, as well as Travis Kelsey, obviously, and they'll, they'll force the heavy boxes. And so if you're a defense, you either have to make a choice in if you want to match the tight ends that they have on the field with, with linebackers and take off defensive backs and, you know, maybe let them pass against you or, do you take the risk of letting one of those tight ends get matched up against an undersized defensive back and, and being taken advantage of from there. So that that's what makes it, it's so difficult, I think, to, to defend the chiefs, like you mentioned. So this is, this is something I wanted to hit on as, as a chiefs fan, I am worried, small worry, but how sustainable is the Chiefs' strategy of having zero good wide receivers on the roster? I mean, it worked out. You know, they win a Super Bowl. Mahomes wins an MVP. He's unbelievable. Travis Kelsey has this crazy age-adjusted season. He probably will have another crazy age-adjusted <laughs> season this year. Although, um, you know, uh, aging curves... Uh, look when you look at uh, an aging curve uh, for for specifically fantasy production, it looks like a bell curve, right? Guys mm -hmm. start low, they trend up, they have like a three four year run where they're at their peak, and then they start to go down. But if you 
look at all the individual examples, very rarely do individuals have bell curve careers, right? Uh, generally, there'll be one big spike in production when a player becomes full-time. And then the end of their career, they go from being a full-time productive player to basically being unable to produce anything. AJ mm-hmm. Green, um, Larry Fitzgerald, Randy yeah. Moss, like a lot of these guys, they go from being, oh, this guy's awesome to this guy can't play anymore. And a lot of that's injury results. You know, it's just you guys get injured more often. But I I am extremely worried. Like, what would the Kansas City Chiefs offense look like if Travis Kelsey is injured, if Travis Kelsey is ineffective? Because they basically just have six wide receivers who are all like half of a wide receiver. Um, and I, I, I think the Chiefs should at least be thinking in the back of their minds, like, we got to have a plan to get some wide receivers who can actually play, which is what they tried to do with Tony. It just seems like it's mm-hmm. not working. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. I think, I think they, yeah, they tried to do it with Kadarius Tony, you know, because of injury or, or other situations. I don't know if that's exactly going to work out, but I do think that it's sustainable as long as they have Travis Kelsey playing at a high level. Like he doesn't even have to be what he was last year. I mean, last year he arguably could have been offensive player of the year, but like he just has to be like 70, 80% of that just enough to still turn a lot of those, um, catches that he had last year that were like four or five yard passes into first downs, which I thought was like his specialty um, this past season, but also just like commanding respect from the defense, like making the defense respect him and, and having to, to match up against him. But I think like the, the underrated aspect of like making this sustainable for the chiefs is they probably have the best interior offensive line in football right now. And so that allows them to do a lot of like Mahomes doesn't have to worry about getting sacked. Like we talked about earlier, uh, mostly because of him, but also because of the interior off line. And then like we saw the run game really come to fruition at the end of the year, especially in that Super Bowl against the Eagles, where they could just run uh, Pacheco like behind those those three offensive linemen there in between the, the guards in the center and just take advantage of these teams that are are too scared to, to put extra defenders in the box because of the the high end passing game so that's why I think like they they're gonna have pieces like the offensive line like um like yeah maybe some of the the other options that they're gonna have uh at receiver but like as long as you have Mahomes and and Andy Reid it should be able to give you a floor of of a top five offense every year and look look they just got to trade for Jonathan Taylor and they can punish (laughs) all those uh they can punish all those light boxes I mean that's that's kind of the crazy thing about this chiefs run is they've wasted a lot of high draft picks now they've absolutely crushed i mean they had two seventh round picks two seventh round rookies starting for Mm. the defense last year um you know that interior offensive line i think they drafted the center from oklahoma in the third round and he started as a rookie like unbelievable wins there but like imagine what this team could look like if they didn't take clyde and they took like literally (laughs) anyone else or if they took t higgins T Higgins, yeah. DK Metcalf. And st- I mm-hmm. mean, the one that the, the one that always sticks in chiefs fans craw the most is McCall Hardman over DK oh. Metcalf because mm-hmm. it was so short-sighted. It clearly was an attempt by the team to replicate Tyreek Hill's skill set because they thought he was going to be suspended or potentially suspended. And, um, you know, like those, like Hardman was a useful player for Kansas city ish. Like he was a good punt returner and, mm-hmm. and whatever, but like, the the Sky Moore pick the Sky Moore pick is brutal too because he was just so bad like he just he would fall over on these end around he was like the worst punt returner in the NFL I think he had the mm. the most negative points of any special teams <laughs> player in the NFL last year and it uh, I mean obviously you can't complain as a Chiefs fan but it is uh, to watch like the Eagles draft so well like it feels like every player the Eagles draft is really good and they're always getting cheap starters like. It is frustrating to watch Sky Moore and like I, I'm already like kind of bummed out about Rasheed Rice. He has he has the training camp reviews haven't been great, but I I, I mean Travis Kelsey is 34. Like the the number mm. of years he has left to do this is sub three, right? Like of, yeah. of being this guy that he is. So I and I'm sure they have a plan. And eventually they will have a little bit more cap space because Mahomes' contract is so team friendly that maybe they can do one of these deals like the Eagles did to get AJ Brown or whatever, but they got to be looking at that because it's not sustainable to play 
because they have one guy in their offense whose job is not even to catch passes. The one of the wide receivers, whether it be MVS or Watson, mm-hmm. or uh, maybe uh, maybe Justin Ross this year, is just to run nine routes that don't get open yeah. at all. And I, like, I mean, honestly, like based on a lot of advanced metrics that take into account like who's on the field and like what the value is, MVS is probably like one of the more underrated players in the league because like he he fits that role so perfectly of just like running those go routes like you talked about and just like changing the way that defenses have to play the chiefs um, underneath, because like you have to respect his ability. And I'm feeling like we saw like what happens if you don't respect it as much in the AFC championship game, like Luana Rumo is probably like one of the best defensive coordinators in the NFL. He wanted to do everything he could to stop that underneath game. That's just been uh, taking advantage of so many defenses last year. And MVS had, you know, one of the best games of his career and, and and sent the chiefs to the super bowl. So I think like, that's why, like, if they can just like fit, get receivers to fit these type of uh, archetypes, like MVS straight line. And um, like we talked about with McCole Hardman, where it's like the, the really fast, like end around speed and, and, you know, getting someone for front turns, like they just can kind of keep cycling through, through all of this, but like, you know, maybe Justin Ross stays healthy and like, just, lights the league on fire that's that's what i'm hoping for and like you know a lot of these these uh worries are end up being moot but um but yeah if, if that doesn't happen i i think that they'll they'll have solutions for it because of the the cap space that you mentioned yeah all right the cover to the too high safety look that i mean honestly through the league's best offenses into a loop when it, they started being presented with it. the chiefs i mean everyone remembers that crazy bad run the chiefs had the Bills went through a mini slump. The Bengals mm-hmm. went through a mini slump. All these passing offenses did go through a slump. And now it seems that the solution, honestly, uh, is not it's not that fun as a viewer of football to watch a bunch of short throws. Uh, it's it's you know, we we all prefer 60-yard bombs, the the Tyler Lockett moon balls. Um, mm-hmm. so I guess two-part question. Is it a little bit overblown? How much are teams actually playing it? And I guess two what do we think the solve from an offensive level is going to be this year? And then I get the, the, the resolve of what the defenses do to adjust. Is it just going to be when you have a six man box? Like if you really are playing that light, are teams just going to be punishing you with interior runs? Like what, what is the state of the, of the two eye safety look? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, this, this is a great topic that we could go on for a long time about, I'm sure. But I mean, yeah, I don't think it's overblown at all because it has caused all these all these mini slumps for these top offenses, these top quarterbacks, like you brought up. But it's also like fundamentally changing the way that top offenses currently are oper- operating. Like you you mentioned the short passes, and when I when I looked into this, um, the correlation between average depth of target and like EPA per pass was the lowest last season that it was since 2014. There was only a 0.06 um our value correlation between that so basically like very little to none correlation um between how deep your passes were and and how efficient your passing offense was in like 2020 it was the exact opposite of that we saw like the the chiefs and the the texans and all these top pass offenses just throwing it deep and taking advantage of um you know somewhat of the the covid year but also just like nfl defenses playing primarily single high and then 2021 we saw uh, the, the branches of two highs start to spread out. And now we're in 2022, 2023, where it's, it's changing a lot. And that's why, like, I think the the first fix to it last year was um, Kyle Shanahan, Andy Reid, and Ben Johnson, who, you know, had three of the, the top five or six passing offenses in the league. They all just specialized in yards after the catch and like scheming that up lowering your average at the target and giving your receivers opportunities for, for yards after the catch. And, and all of them leaned into that heavily last year. And I think the next iteration of that is going to be the, the heavy personnel that we talked about earlier. I think the bills drafting Dalton Kincaid, whether he's like, you can debate whether or not he'll be treated as a receiver or a tight end by defenses. It is just like, they're putting out someone out there who defensive backs um, that can typically cover receivers aren't going to be able to cover as often in Dalton Kincaid. And they're, they're going to increase their, their 12 personnel usage and then run game diversity, I think as well as, 
is going to be this, this counter punch that offenses have towards defenses where it's a lot of, um, you know, different concepts. So just outside zone, inside zone, we're going to see a, a big increase in a lot of gap schemes, a lot of, a lot of pull leads and like just taking advantage of two safeties being 20 yards back instead of just one safety being there earlier and, and making sure that these, these linebackers aren't able to move as well. And then from a defensive perspective, I think that we're going to start to see a lot of cover one, uh, especially on third down. And that's going to stem from safety rotations where they could start in a too high shell and get into these, these um, different variations of cover one, like cover one rad or cover one hole where they're pulling a, a, um, a, a like safety down into the box and, and making sure that they can cover both ends of if there's going to be a short run or if there's going to be a pass. Well, so on one, that's very good information. The other thing is there's actually, this has already happened in the NFL. The cover two thing existed. It, it was called the Tampa two. It was like, this was the, this was the defense that like Gruden inherited. Like there, there's already been, and then, teams found a way to beat it, I guess, again, a different time in the NFL where we had different information. But, uh, I mean, my my proposal was just to ban it, like, because I was so sick of it for fantasy mm-hmm. football purposes. I was like, yeah. the, safeties, the safeties have to be uh, outside the hashes and they have to be like one safety has to be within 10 yards of line of scrimmage or whatever. <laughs> that, was, that was my proposal. It was obviously never going to go through. But I do... Uh, I mean, look, the greatest minds in football, Andy Reid and Ben Johnson and Kellen Moore, like these guys have had nothing to do for the last six months, but figure out how are we going to beat this and how Mm -hmm. are we going to score more points and gain more yards? Uh, All right. Our last question. What is your favorite solution to, I think like from uh, if you are, if you are a person concerned about the welfare of the workers, very good running backs just simply do not get paid enough based on the percentage of the time that they are asked to carry the ball. No one is disagreeing with the fundamental premise that Isaiah Crowell can do like 87% of the job that Saquon Barkley can do. It's just, this is a moot point. It's not worth arguing anymore. Mm -hmm. We know that running back production is the easiest thing to find that good teams don't pay their running backs, anything that it's a salary cap game. And you got to pay the positions that impact winning the most. No one disagrees with it, but it doesn't change the very fundamental issue that you really, it's unfair to be tackled 300 times a year and make one 87th of your team's payroll or whatever. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's not justified. So what is your favorite solution to this problem? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's really unfortunate, right? Because running backs, the peak of their performance um, is, is really in in college football where we're like when, when they're of of that age, 19 through 22, like that's when we really see running backs dominate. We've seen uh, offenses like go through running backs in college that we don't see in NFL. I mean, even if you just look at last year, like Jameer Gibbs was Alabama's second leading receiver. And also like was running the ball the majority of the time. Obviously, Bijan Robinson was the the engine for Texas's offense last year. And so I think like when you can kind of work from the the standpoint of running backs age differently than most other positions from a production standpoint, my favorite feasible solution would be the player getting the option to opt out of their rookie contract after their third or fourth year or, or after they played two or three years. So going into the third or fourth year, and this can be, this can be all players across the league, right? Like, I don't think there should be just a specific running back solution because like there's, there's a slippery slope from that standpoint, but like if players played two years on a cost controlled contract and then were able to opt out of it based on the production that they felt like they, they put out on the field, I think that could help them a lot. You think about Jonathan Taylor's situation where his second year in, in the NFL, he was, he was awesome leading rusher um, in the league and he could have opted out of his contract right then probably got in, you know, between uh, 12 and 14 million a year from the Colts for, for the next three or four years and have been set financially. But because he had to play his third year under rookie contract, it was a little bit disappointing with some injuries. And now he has this, this saga with Jim Ursay where he's in this situation. So I think, I think giving players more, uh, more of the opportunity to, to opt out of their contract. And like, if they feel like they haven't played 
up to their contract yet, they can stay as part of that rookie contract and, and still get that money. So it should work both ways for the players in that regard. But, um, you know, I don't know exactly how likely that is to happen because of how much control the owners have. It's just something I'd like to see happen. I like that solution. Um, a couple of the other ones that, uh, and, and a lot of these are unrealistic without like a workers union, like a, run, a literal running back union, or for running backs to get a special carve out in the next mm -hmm. CBA, which is not negotiated for a while. It's not negotiated until 2030. But one thing I like uh, is not performance-based incentives, but touch-based incentives for and you could you could apply this to wide receivers and tight ends too where like if you reach 30% of your team's total touches you get paid out of like a bonus pool yeah. there's a pool mm -hmm. that exists in the CBA and so five running backs who get 30% of their team's touches get you know 3 million dollars extra mm -hmm. and if you get 20% touches you get 1 and a half million dollars and if you get 10% you know or 10% might be too low well i don't know i mean i don't know if you want like kj osborne um getting into this pool or whatever but i really like that one and then a solution that i thought originally was intelligent but then i soon realized just creates more problems is you enter into the nfl draft as a running back and you get positionally designated as a running back you have to sign a card or whatever you you only get a two-year contract right so on the face of it i was like oh this is brilliant the guys who are good are still going to be at their peak age when they enter free agency or franchise tag or whatever. So that gets them to a second contract quicker, but then you realize that just really decreases their value to their mm -hmm. teams. You know, so, so basically a running back who would be a first round pick becomes a third round pick and like third round picks just go undrafted basically because mm -hmm. teams are like, we don't want to do that. And then obviously the, the best solution to all of these things is there is no draft and you just enter yeah. into a free agency pool. Um, that I, I would love to see it. it. It's actually a solution that works better for the NBA than it does mm -hmm. for the NFL. Um, but I, that is, I mean, that is my, uh, that is my platonic ideal of how NFL rookie contracts should work is that everyone just comes in as a free agent, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, I mean, I think like the common pushback behind that is like, oh, like, you know, th this doesn't stop from like all the best players going to like the Chiefs or something but, like the Chiefs, the best teams have less cap space than the worst teams because like they have good players on their team they have to play. So like if you look at like the situation where like the Bears, for example, entered this this past offseason with a ton more money than the rest of the league because they were the worst team last year, they don't really have these super big contracts that they're paying they would have been able to stack up on, on these picks in the draft and negotiating their contract. And it becomes an efficient market where the bears are competing against all these other teams um, to, to get the, the players that they want. And you think about like the way free agency and the draft will work in that regard. Like, I think, I think that would be really cool. Um, and, and like, it would be, it'd be super interesting to see like how that changes uh, the way that people, cause like, I mean, I love the draft. The draft is a great night because all 32 teams, sometimes the Rams, maybe it's so the 31 teams are involved in, in the first round of the draft. But like, when you look at it from the draft discourse has become boring. It's just like, oh, these play these teams took premium positions. We like their draft. These yep. teams reached on some non-premium positions. We don't like their draft. This would really change the, the, the um, discourse about the draft, which would, which would make it a lot of fun. It would be, it would be way more fun. And mm -hmm. um, you could even, you could even do it roughly according to scale you know you could be like well okay you can't pay you can't give Caleb Williams Patrick Mahomes's contract like yeah. you you could put you could put an upper limit and a lower limit on it um yeah but there would be a way I mean I it, honestly the, the a big aversion to this would be it would be harder to make a great television like yeah, it would have exactly. to be it would have mm -hmm. to be like a bunch of stuff gets um pre-negotiated basically uh for for it to be really good on tv but then it would get leaked you know then then mm -hmm. Schefter and you know all these <laughs> like it, it it would end up it would end up being problematic but um yeah I don't know like I don't think NFL contracts are going to look the same way after the next CBA because there are uh there are enough positions now that are just totally getting the short shrift that you know interior linebackers and centers 
and yeah. running yeah. backs mm-hmm. like these 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 are going to be they're going to you know i mean that's that's 150 guys right there yeah more actually who are going to be like you know we we don't just want to negotiate a cba for patrick mahomes and aj brown like we deserve to be compensated more fairly well even like tight ends i mean Travis Kelsey, Mark Andrews, uh, TJ Hawkinson, like maybe Darren Waller this year, they're going to put up um, like the same amount of receiving yards as like mid-level wide receiver ones. And they block and some of them block on like some of these plays. So like, that's like an inefficient market to me right now is like, if you have a top five tight end, you pay them like they're like a, like you pay them like they're a mid-level wide receiver. Yeah. They get, they get Jarvis, they get Jarvis Landry money. Exactly. Yeah. So like that, that's like something I think could be changed. Well, so yeah, I mean, there, I agree with you. Like, I think the NFLPA has probably learned from the last CBA negotiation that they didn't do a great job in, in supporting their, their players and in, in some aspects of it. And they're going to, they're going to come to to the next one with, with some more fighting power, hopefully. Yeah. All right. I think that was a great conversation. I think we can, we can cut it there. Why don't you tell everyone what you guys have going on with Sumer Sports? subscribe to the YouTube, listen to the podcast. And uh, if they're interested in learning more about your work, how they can pursue that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, thanks for, thanks for letting me do this. Um, yeah. I mean, first off like sumersports.com. Uh, I, I have some articles up on there and we're going to have some pretty cool um, data tools and, and things going up pretty soon. So be sure to check that out. I also do the, the Sumer Sports show most Wednesdays uh, in, in the off season. And then I'll be doing it Tuesdays with my friend, Sean Syed, uh, during the season. And then there's, there's other, um, Thomas Dimitrov, the former GM of the Falcons. And, you know, my friend, Eric Eager also does the Sumer sports show as well. So you can find that on, on Apple, Spotify, or, or YouTube, like you mentioned. Beautiful. Uh, friend of the show, Eric Eager. He's been on mm-hmm. a bunch. Great dude. Love everything you guys have going on over there. Make sure you guys are following at Tej FB analytics on Twitter, and I'll be back next week. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. It's time to take your career to the next level. With over 150 graduate degree programs, the Catholic University of America, located in Washington, D.C., provides world-class academics with a student experience that educates the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Whether your professional calling is in engineering, nursing, social work, or any of our other exceptional degree programs, encounter the best of everything that Catholic University has to offer and discover the best in yourself. Learn more today at catholic.edu forward slash gradadmissions.